Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 198. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we discuss GIS in CRM with Heather McDaniel McDevitt, a California archaeologist and principal investigator. Let's get to it. Welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, everyone. Paul, how are you doing? Uh, doing fine. Nothing new to report. I've just been, uh, you know, doing little projects here and there. I decided to redo my... Uh, contour map that I did at the end of 2021 with wow. the drone data that I collected at Lagash because this yeah. last season we had an RTK um, GNSS receiver and we placed a whole bunch of benchmarks. So instead of when I did it before, I just had to average the elevations one flight against the other. Uh, but now I mm-hmm. actually have some real on the ground, <laughs> very accurate uh, elevation points. So I reprocess the entire thing. And I'm just kind of waiting around trying to find out if I'm going to go to Saudi Arabia or not. <laughs> it keeps on getting kicked down. It's a, it's a rolling one to two week window. Oh, wow. That's crazy. It's crazy to just have to be prepared for such a distant and long-term trip. You know what I mean? It's just, mm-hmm. yeah, it's tough to prepare for. You can't do anything. So anyway, that's like a lot of CRM projects. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, we're going to yeah. start. We're going to start. We're going to start. We're just waiting yeah. on a permit. And it's like, my God, I got to do something, you know? So <laughs> yeah, I, I would be happy if I had an income again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? So, all right. Well, we have another interview today and it's actually somebody that you guys in our audience here may have heard from before, because if you listen to the CRM archaeology podcast, Heather has been on the podcast for a few years now, and she has been a really valuable source of just wisdom and insight on that podcast because of her position and her experience in archaeology and and what she's done and, and in CRM in particular, and on the business side of CRM and just project management and just all kinds of stuff. And it turns out she's got a, a real passion as I think, well, probably as most people that get to a certain level kind of have to, but uh, for GIS. And we talked last fall about getting her on to just talk about GIS and the context that she works with it uh, at her firm and just her interest in GIS around that stuff. But for whatever reason, couldn't get the interview nailed down. So now we're going to do it. And I will formally welcome Heather to the Architect Podcast. How's it going? Hi. Thanks, Chris. What a nice introduction. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, no worries. So, I mean, you're literally at work, probably have ArcGIS open on one of your screens right now. So, you know, (laughs) that's just the life of that kind of person, right? But let's just kick this off. When we first started talking about this and you're like, you know, I could come on and and talk GIS stuff. What were your thoughts around that? What's your passion around this? After I got my graduate degree in archaeology, I was working regularly, but I didn't have a actual full-time job nailed down. So I, I was working for a company. They didn't, really didn't hire full-time people. It's a very small com- company that was predominantly paleo. And so I didn't really see a whole lot of opportunity there. And it just, you know, I was just, I don't know, trying to find my way 
in, in the archaeology mm-hmm. world, um, CRM world. And I had gotten a GIS certificate while I was going through graduate school for archaeology. And oh. I thought, you know, at the time, the chair of the department for, for the GIS department had really been trying to push some interdisciplinary graduate students. So people that were from other disciplines coming in to get a graduate degree in GIS. And at the Mm -hmm. time I thought, you know, this might be a really good opportunity for me to increase my skill set. And so I decided, you know, I was going to try to do that. They were making it very attractive for me. Wasn't going to cost much. And, (laughs) and they, because they were really working hard to get some other disciplines in and so, and, and I actually really love the department. It was such a great environment altogether. The professors are amazing, very invested. And so mm-hmm. I decided I was going to, I was going to take my graduate, my thesis work and then expand it and look at predictive modeling and get a GIS master's. Mm-hmm. And so, so I went into the master's program for the GIS department after I graduated and I was still working full time, but hadn't quite had that full time position yet. While I was in graduate school, I I nailed down a a full time job with the company I'm with now, actually. Yeah. And at the time, they sold me because they were going to have me do forty percent GIS and sixty percent archaeology. And so it really is what got my foot in the door. That, along with my skill sets with human osteology and and faunal analysis, which they did not have at the time. So GIS was a great window opener for me, door opener, I guess. (laughs) But as I started making my way up the ladder, actually, at some point, they took GIS away from me. (laughs) They wouldn't (laughs) even let me have access to ArcGIS because they didn't want me tempted (laughs) to work with it because I had other stuff I needed to do. And I do enjoy, you know, there were some times where, you know, GIS, they get overloaded and it's just easy enough for me to go in there and make what I need. Mm-hmm. But we do use GIS just to, for analysis and just to kind of wrap our head around, you know, certain tasks. And, and so I still do use GIS. I'm not fully GIS really. It's just yeah. a tool. You've got, you've got people yeah. for that now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't like doing it like that, but yes, I mean, it is. <laughs> I have too much on my plate for that now. Yeah, I leave it yeah. to the people that, are keeping up with it. That's the other thing is I, I try to keep up with it, but it is something that you do have to exercise. You know, it's not mm-hmm. something you can just do and then step away and then come back and be able to pick it up. Like you had no time missed. Now I can, it's like riding a bike. I go in there and I, you know, look around and it's intuitive to me, but it takes some time for me to get to refamiliarize myself if I've been away from it for a while. Especially right. things change, right? Things are updated. and But I don't get to do the analysis. I have done some. Probably the last time I did any kind of predictive modeling was about five years ago. Mm-hmm. That was serious predictive modeling. Okay. Your graduate certificate, let's just go back to the beginning a little bit here. Did, were you required to do any like uh, a special project for that? Or was it all coursework? Or It was, uh, it was a three-year program. And it was very similar to the way it was set up for the archaeology uh, masters. And that was okay. two, two years of robust classes. And then, yeah. uh, which I'd already taken quite a few, right? Hmm. So I'd already got my certificate. I had done a suite. It was a suite of five classes. 
And I, mm-hmm. and that's actually what kind of hooked me, which uh, was smart on their part. And then I, I did a few more classes because I enjoyed it so much. So I'd already kind of knocked out quite a few of the classes needed for the masters. And then the project was the predictive modeling. So I'm in the Santa Barbara area, Santa Barbara Channel region, comparing the Channel Islands with with the mainland. Oh, okay. That's pretty cool. It's fun because, you know, there's not a lot, there's so much work done on the islands and you would think mm-hmm. the other way around, right? But there's a, just a ton of work done on the island, on the Northern, specific, specifically Northern Channel Islands. And there's, you know, comparatively not as much on the mainland. There's, you know, a, a good amount, but if you were to compare yeah. relative, there's more there. And the academic, the research is predominantly academic out on the mm-hmm. islands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a little curious about the sense of not being current in it if you're if you're not using it all the time. Is that, I mean, GIS tools are so common now uh, mm-hmm. and we use them for so many kinds of visualizations. Do you mean with respect to the predictive modeling, which is a fairly advanced yes. use of GIS, or do you just mean right. in general that uh, that jumping into any you know dark GIS looks different because you haven't used it in a yeah. year and you'd need to refresh yourself with it? That's such a great question because I think most people when they're looking at getting a GIS mm-hmm. degree and they're trying to say, or they're, they want to get a certificate like I did, or a lot of places don't have that, or just taking a few classes so they can say they have that skill set. They mm-hmm. need to understand that there's, it's completely different. Like having the ability to create figures is not the same as GIS. So GIS in its definition is actual analysis. It's a science and mm-hmm. it's geographical information science, right? And if you really, if you have a degree in GIS, like a, an actual full degree in GIS, not just taking a few classes while you have another degree. And it specifically, if you have one in a graduate degree, it is focused on how do you analyze with the data? So mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. initial classes that you take are really, they're really about, which are all important. They're really about how to create figures, how to do initial data, mining data analysis, but it's not mm-hmm. heavy duty at all. And mm-hmm. a lot of it is also cartography, learning mm-hmm. how to communicate data in a figure, which is key. Like you can have, there's so many maps. I don't know how much you guys are into maps but oh yeah you know there are really good examples of very poor maps <laughs> that don't oh, yeah. communicate yeah. they may be pretty but they don't make any sense so that yeah. that's a big part of gis too that's such a a good thing to say too right because it's not just about doing the analysis I, I actually heard somebody tell me last night he's this kind of older guy and he's got all these colloquialisms but he said one i hadn't personally heard before he's like Nobody needs a drill. They need a hole. They just need a drill to do the hole, right? So he's trying to say, mm-hmm. what's the actual problem you're trying to solve here? You don't want to you don't want right. to buy that. So nobody needs GIS. They need maps. <laughs> they need analysis yeah. and they need answers. But GIS happens to be the best tool for that job. So but but if you don't give an output that somebody can make sense with, then you just wasted all your time, right? Because what's the point? Yes. So Yes, and um, I I have another thought a, a way of looking at that from another perspective. But mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to take it on the next in the next segment. Let's take a break and then we'll we'll open with that on the other side. So we'll be back in just a minute. Waiting on a tax return. Hopefully it ends up in your hands. 
Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to episode 198 of the Architect Podcast. And we're sitting here talking to Heather McDaniel McDevitt about her GIS and, and her GIS work and, and the stuff that she does at her firm. She's not a GIS specialist, but... This is just such a great conversation because, I mean, even if you don't feel like you need to learn GIS in your life for whatever reason, you're using GIS products and it's helpful to understand mechanism around this thing, even if you just have a cursory knowledge of it to understand how these things are put together so you can better articulate to the people at your firm that do do these things what you need, right? Because there's always two different sets. And that's what we were just kind of talking about is you've got the people putting data together and and putting all these maps and things together. But if they can't put an output in that either you understand or somebody can understand in a way that you actually need it, then everybody's just kind of wasting their time there. And you had some more to, to kind of talk on that subject, Heather, before the break. Sure. Yeah, that's a really good way of, of putting it, Chris. I think that, you know, it goes both ways. Let's say you're trying to get an archaeology job and they, the job description says that you must have some some kind of command of GIS. Typically, mm-hmm. what an, a CRM firm is looking for is somebody who can create figures. Mm-hmm. It's not analysis. And so, if you know, if anybody's ever really you know looking for a job and they look at that and they s- just being able to take GIS and create appropriate figures, which are typically the same thing almost every time, right? You want a project location. You want a project vicinity. Uh, there are two different types. And this may be more specific to California where I work, but I know, you know I've worked outside of California too. We use those as well. Basically a overview. Where does your site, project site, fit in the grand scale of things? And where is your site actually? So, so a lot of times that's more of a zoomed in sure. where you can look at the type, the characteristics, traits of the site. And then then you have a site plan and those types of things. And so most of those are just, yes, you're you're working with GIS to communicate aspects of your project, but you're not doing analysis. What's the difference between creating a figure and doing analysis? Analysis mm-hmm. is just bringing in all this data and trying to figure out something that you wouldn't be able to figure out or wouldn't be able to communicate, both figure out and communicate without a tool that can take all this data and spit out things that overlap. Right. Just to make it as simple as possible. So, you know, if let's say one thing you're trying to look at, you know, predictive modeling, you, you put in the traits of the sites that you do know that are there. And then you look at the commonalities between those sites. And then you try to find that on your landscape in areas that you don't, uh, let's say you have a larger area. 
a county or a city, and you you apply this set of data that overlaps, and mm-hmm. you put it on your area that you're looking at, and it allows you to have certain areas that pop up and tell you, okay, this fits your parameters here. This yeah. may have a higher pro- probability of having a, a site. So all this is, that's analysis. You see it a lot in biology and a lot of with habitat. And, you know, we're, we're, mm-hmm. we're humans, right? Habitat's important to us too. So in biology, I think GIS is probably used more, more in biology than, than a lot of the other technical disciplines. If you work in an environmental firm that has multi-disciplines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, sure. yeah, I mean, I think that, that that's one thing that people need. I think a lot of people don't realize that when a CRM company is asking that you have some GIS knowledge, it's typically so you can make a figure. And a figure is important, but a figure is not analysis. Right. Yeah, that makes, that sense. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. More of a representation, right? Of, mm-hmm. of something, right? And it's I like to think of it as... Of your findings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I like to think of, you know, JS work is is more the end product and working backwards. So I do this with my, my other job too. I ask a client, well, what are you actually trying to achieve here? And then I try to work the steps back to, to create that result, right? And mm-hmm. Paul worked with me and my company on a project out in Nevada a couple of years ago. And another company was partnered with us to do the GIS work and, and also some of the survey. And, you know, we basically needed to know, well, where can we survey? Because the right. variables were slope. The mm-hmm. forest service didn't want us looking at anything over uh, 30%. Right. And then also we needed to know like access and, and, you know, properties and, and then the segments that we were actually surveying at that time. Cause there was a lot of different segments out there. So those are all the variables and, and they needed to have, you know, pretty high resolution topographical maps of that whole mountain range because there's a lot of topography out there. Right. And then understand, you know, some other bits and pieces too. And they put all that together and you end up with a map that says survey there. <laughs> yeah, here. And we try yeah. to shade all those in. Yeah. So, right. and that's all I needed. That was, don't survey here because you're going to fall yes. side of the hill. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. So I, it's so, it's so handy. And, you know, I don't necessarily need a, a heavy knowledge of GIS to get that. I, I need somebody and I need to be able to give them the information that I need and articulate it in a way that, that I can use, but also in a way that they can understand to provide the result because the, the GIS department sometimes, especially at bigger firms, I've noticed, I don't know how it is where you work, but they're not often archaeologists, right? They're GIS specialists. Well, that's why I was hired. That's exactly right. why I was hired. I was the, hired yeah. to be that liaison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's good. So you can translate those, you know, th- those those differences back and forth, right? You have to be that right, person yeah. that can interpret both sides. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. That ahead, idea Paul. of being able to translate, I think, is really important. Chris, you raised it twice now about uh, what's your end result. You know, your end result isn't to have a drill; it's to have a hole, the right size in yeah. the right place. And that's something that in IT, I was asking constantly. People would say, "Oh, I've got yeah. this problem," and they'd tell me what they tried to do to solve it without actually explaining what the problem was in a way that that was broken mm-hmm. down to the. I tried to do X and Y happened. And that's, you know, so I'd always have to roll back all their, their questions back to that point. And, uh, sure. and it seems to me that because we use GIS so heavily in its basic, just using the tool form for making figures, like Heather's saying, and in more advanced forms, like what she's advocating for as analyses, it seems to me that that having people in the business that can translate or can speak this common language, I think is really useful. 
I, I just I would like to hear what what Heather has to say about that because I'm sure that's something she bumps into all the time. You mean how to communicate? How what? to communicate effectively what the uh, what the sets of expectations and goals are when you're talking about products that intersect with GIS that either they're, right. they're whether they're figure creation or analyses um, right that are part of that workflow that's such a good I good uh, very good question but we have a, a fairly large GIS department and we have some that we really prefer to work with <laughs> I mean, it's, because you know they either they just get it you know they've caught on they're into analysis they're very like detail oriented. They're really interested in archaeology. So even though they're not archaeologists, they love doing the figures because it gives them at least some kind of window into what we do. Mm-hmm. And then there's others that we've worked with for a while. So they know exactly what we want. So communicating, I think the best way, if you've never done GIS, the best way to think about it is that GIS works in layers. And it's, and I'm going to age myself here, but when I was younger and I was into, you know, certain, I was into like history, I was kind of a nerd and I was into history and, and I was always we curious. Yes, <laughs> we all were. <laughs> I was curious how an area changed over time. And I thought to myself, you know, I could take, you know, transparencies that you put on an overhead mm-hmm. and draw each, you know, have a map of each time period and then put those things on top of each other and look at how things change. So that was what was in my head. And since that's what's been in my head, that's how I always see GIS. When you're communicating with a GIS analyst, you need to explain to them how you want your information layered. That's like very key. And sometimes they'll help you with that too. Another thing that's important is how do you use symbology to communicate Mm-hmm. So many different pieces of information. That's hard. Yeah. And it you're not everybody, not every GIS analyst is good at that. And that's right. where I think I wish that GIS programs spent more time on cartography mm-hmm. than than some do. There's there's some that don't spend hardly any. There's a whole theory behind cartography. There's a oh, whole absolutely. there's an art behind it. There's some amazing books out there that mm-hmm. are literal art pieces you don't even know you're looking at a map and you're looking at a map if you're looking if you're looking at it you actually in your head your brain your cognitive you know your brain tells you you're looking at the map but if you just walked by it you would think you're looking at a piece of art if that makes sense and so we all think we have to have a box and we have to have roads and we have to have you know these these things that you know every map has to have and then you realize that's not true. There's so much noise on maps that don't need to happen. Mm-hmm. But that's the art of GIS is figuring out what is noise and what is important. Mm-hmm. But then also with, with you know, in the our business, when you're working with environmental firms, there's also has to be some kind of consistency. So people expect the map to look a certain way. So you can only mm-hmm. play with it a certain amount. But what I love are those projects where we're actually working on a project right now where it's a really important village site near our office. And at one point it was an island in the middle of a very large slough. <laughs> and awesome. yeah, it's and it was big. And the island in the 40s was just taken down by, I don't know, like uh, it was, I don't know, three quarters of it was taken and used as fill to fill hmm. in the slough so they could have an airport there during wartime. Wow. And so, you know, quite a bit of it's gone, unfortunately, 
But being able to communicate, we have one figure that worked, I worked with GIS quite a bit to demonstrate how the island was, but thankfully that didn't happen until like the 40s. So we have a decent amount of historic aerials that have this, the, the island and then, you know, what happened to it. And then looking at all the different excavations that have happened, it's actually one of those sites that people would give their right arm to excavate at. We actually happen to be doing a data recovery at it right now. And, you know, being able to identify the areas that have been looked at already, um, take all the data that so that we know where we have potentially intact or known intact deposits. And it's a lot of information on one figure, but I think we came up with a pretty good pretty good figure that anyone, if the, even if they're not archaeologists, have uh, can look at it and understand it. Cool. Nice. Well, that's actually a good segue because uh, I wanted to do some of the stuff you guys have worked on or are currently worked on um, that's interesting and has some, some, some good analysis or analytical techniques and things like that or some fun maps. And we'll do that on the other side of the break in our final segment. Back in a minute. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back to the Architect Podcast. This is our final segment, episode 198. And Heather, this go around, you led right into it with your last example at the end of segment two. But I wanted to talk about some interesting scenarios you've had working for this company in the past, or maybe even currently, where you guys had to do something that wasn't just a, you know, a line drawing field map, which is probably 70% or 80% of what a GIS department ends up doing, you know, location maps and, and site site maps, but, right. you know, some really cool, interesting stuff and some out of the box kind of thinking that had to happen in, from a GIS standpoint. Yeah, I think just off the top of my head, the first thing that I think of is an experience that we had when we were working with tribes and they were consulting on a project and you know, there's sometimes where there's just a distrust of, um, and for good reason, of the data sets that we as archaeologists use on a regular basis. One of those things is in California, it's called CRIS, which is the mm-hmm. database for all, you know, site records and former reports. There's a lot of holes in that, right? It's all dependent on whether or not people turn in their site records, turn in their reports. So there can certainly be negative bias. And tribes are definitely concerned with that. And also, you know, okay, so you did turn in a site record or you did turn in some, you know, you did do an investigation, you're turning your report. Maybe they are not all that convinced that the investigation you did was all that, you know, appropriate or that you you came to the findings you should have. And so uh, that your methodology was flawed. And so 
you know, just because we have information doesn't mean that's all that convincing to some people. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, the one thing, you know, was just helping out with this informal, it was an informal consultation that eventually helped inform the formal consultation. And I came up with an idea to look at all the sites because they were convinced this one area had to have a site there. And I knew looking at the landscape, I just, just didn't make sense to me that there would be one there, (laughs) but I knew that that that's not enough. And I don't, I don't, you know, blame them for being critical of that. And so having something where we could actually say, this is data, not what do we know? Are there sites here? But looking at what, like I was saying before, the the predictive modeling and looking at the sites, because there were quite a few sites around the area, which many people say, if you have sites surrounding an area, then, you know, you have a higher probability of this area that hasn't been looked at having a site. Well, not necessarily, because you have to look at the natural landscape, right? I mean, that's Mm -hmm. what all good archaeologists do. And so, but being able to communicate that, not just with a map, but be able to communicate that with all the data and demonstrate that we've taken all the data and all the understanding that we have of the natural landscape into play, and we've incorporated it into this analysis and come up with findings that were more believable. And so that is what we did. It almost covered an entire quadrangle Hmm. of the topo map. So it's a pretty big area. And um, so we did that. We also did one, you know, what's, you know, happening a lot out here right now is wildfire protection plans. So you don't have the time to go and survey everywhere in a wildfire protection plan because it is literally an entire county. It can be right. Or an entire city. So how do you do that? How do you figure out where you might have a potential of having an archeological site? And so all that was, you know, predictive modeling and finding areas of sensitivity and a, a gradation of sensitivity and then preparing mitigation measures that were appropriate for each level of sensitivity. Those are, I really love projects like that. And just for context, yeah, for our (laughs) Eastern United States listeners or Europe, for that matter, some of the California counties are probably bigger than the state or country you live in. So they're pretty huge. (laughs) 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 The largest county in the United States is in Southern California. San Bernardino, isn't it? San Bernardino. Yeah. Yeah, That's what I thought. Yeah, that county's enormous. Like you, you can be somewhere you didn't even think you you were near it, and you just pass a sign that says "Entering San Bernardino County." And you're like, "What? I'm in the Mojave. Yeah. What's going on?" And yes. then <laughs> you're on the other side. Yeah, it's huge. So. And you know that's that really brings up a good point because you know there's sometimes where you're walking into an area that you may not be all that familiar with, and that's where GIS mm-hmm. can be helpful. I think GIS can start you on the path to having good field methodology. Mm-hmm. Um, starting with GIS will really set you up to do your best work in the field. And sure. especially if you're mm-hmm. doing like we cover a huge area. So I can't go and just look, you know, I'm not going to know every single area. There's no way like the back of my hand. Yeah. And so GIS really helps with that. Nice. Yeah, I'll agree. I mean, Chris was talking about the slope write-offs that we had in Nevada. Mm-hmm. And I think I'd mentioned on a previous episode about um, being told to dig for the foundations of a building in one location. And then I looked at the uh, the LIDAR hillshade 
<laughs> for that area, and I could see the <laughs> the the, uh, the foundations where they actually were, which is where right. we thought they were, based off of you know having dug STPs all over that area. <laughs> and then we could verify and argue for hey, why we really should look for the foundations of the building here, not where we were told to initially, right? Which would have been avoided had it all yes. started in uh, in GIS. Yep. And that's part of, you know, obviously what we're doing here. It's not just for communication, but for just logistics. I mean, mm -hmm. logistical planning, mm -hmm. right? You know, another, you were talking about slopes. So one of the largest or the largest project I'd ever worked on, which is, I have to say, probably my, one of my favorites was something called the Santa Susana Field Laboratory, which is in the San Fernando Valley area. We're right on the edge of the LA County and Ventura County and Southern California. And it's where uh, NASA is on there. NASA is on there and um, Boeing. And there was mm -hmm. a, you know, an accident that happened back in the 60s. And so it was a cleanup, super fun cleanup site. And the original archaeologists that had done work in that area had only found like there's one a rock art site that's probably one of the most well-known rock art sites in, in the United States called Borough Flats, or at least it's, it's it's very impressive. You don't know about it. Look it up. Hmm. And so everybody knew that that was there because people have known that for a while. It's a solstice site, but they had only looked at the ballot. They had all just said, okay, we're not going to look at slopes because there's no habitation that would happen up there and everything. And so they only found like five, look, five sites in this entire 6,000 acre area project site. And after we were done, there was almost 200 sites that were there. And that was because you know that, you know, you have all this rock art is typically in rock shelters, right? And so, you know, looking at where in the slope idea, I understand the slope idea, but that's where GIS can help you. And you can say, okay, well, what is out there? If there is anything on the slope, what is, what is out there? And then looking at you know, outcrops and um, mm. geological outcrops and actually looking at the landscape to see, okay, we're not going to do the slope, but let's see if there is a potential of having other types of sites out there and at least mm -hmm. pinpointing those areas and looking at them. So you're not have these blinders on and miss almost 200 sites. So Heather, uh, let's round this out. Um, you've given a pretty full-throated argument for why GIS done right is a good thing. Can you give us just a few examples before we go about things you'd like to see more of or things you'd like to see less of by people using GIS or not mm. using GIS in uh, in CRM in particular, but archaeology in general? Oh, geez. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just a simple little question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I would say, first of all, not creating maps for the sake of creating maps. I think that when you have a map, it's got to mean something. Mm. And other than your figure one, figure two, which in many cases, agencies request or require, excuse me. But having a bunch of maps for the sake of having a bunch of maps doesn't make sense. And then the other, and it just confuses things. It confuses, remember the reports that we write have got to be palatable to the reader. And many times those, most times, those are not archaeologists. And so mm. you have to look at what is it you're trying to communicate. So- if you are, I see this, I don't say a lot, but I see this, you know, when you're looking through reports that other people have done to kind of gather information about your project, you see people that kind of step into the information that they're giving with maps. So they'll have 
multiple iterations of pretty much the same map where they just keep adding mm-hmm. new information on top, right? And that it's not helpful. Like if you have to me, I think in some instances, maybe it's helpful, but for the most part, it's not. So if you had several maps that every time you're adding some kind of a layer, what would you, or, or you're not adding a layer, you're saying, okay, I'm only going to give this information on this map. So I have a project site and I get this information on the overlaid on top of the project site. And then the next one I say, okay, now I'm going to give you this information. I'm going to take away the old information. I'm going to put a new data set on here. Well, I, for me, what I would do is I would lay all those maps up and I would be trying to compare. Well, that's not what GIS is meant for. GIS is meant for you to be able to, to look at all the information at one time. That's why we have georeferencing, why we have the ability to actually spatially tie information. It's not just the data. Let's say we have maps, we have historic aerials, all these things that we can spatially tie so we can more accurately overlay things on uh, pieces of information on top of each other and really see where, you know, where information pops out that make you want to look at that area more than another. And so I would say having too many maps that (laughs) is, is to me, kind of a, not pet peeve, but just, I would say people need to kind of rethink that approach. Yeah. I see it a lot. And I think that it might just be because a person's not a GIS person, so they don't see it like that. And you may have, let's say you have an archaeologist that says you have to do it this way. I mean, basically, they're just asking for GIS to give them a digital form of their handwritten map. That's not what GIS is for. You know, that's a lot of work uh, for nothing. Just do your handwritten map, but that's what you're going to do, unless your handwriting is that bad. But (laughs) behind those kinds of approaches is a very frustrated GIS person, I'm sure, who's saying, I totally put this in one (laughs) figure if you would just let me so yeah, that gets at some of the ideas that you were talking about earlier about uh, symbology and GIS programs, and also about communication and you know having a shared language that we can understand. You don't have to necessarily flatten everything into each map just shows one kind of feature, but you can smartly show them all. Provided you've got you know good GIS people on one side and archaeologists are willing to work with them on the other side, right? Yeah, and one of the things I was thinking of, Heather, when you were saying you know. GIS is not about just digitizing hand-drawn maps. I mean, as a small company owner, when I was first starting out, honestly, I had a cursory knowledge of GIS. I took one graduate class in GIS just to kind of get my feet wet. And then when I became a, a started owning my own company, I couldn't afford ArcGIS. So I was using QGIS, mm-hmm. which was fine and doing my own tutorials and just kind of figuring out what I needed to do. But I learned really early on what I did have to hand on uh, digitize not necessarily hand-drawn maps, but in some cases, hand-drawn maps, but in, in a lot of cases, just just making a map out of something I made in the field. You know, I, I didn't need a complicated GIS tool. I actually used some other stuff on my iPad to create those maps with their, you know, spatial relationships just to communicate the idea because that was the easiest tool for the job. And I didn't use a GIS to do that. And, you know, I ended up, you know, having more projects and, and getting more stuff rather than, again, staying in your lane, right? Rather than me trying to spend all this time and and figure this out and do a good job. Like I hired a a contractor, somebody I knew who was a GIS specialist to do the GIS work for me because, you know, that's going to cost me money, but it's way less money than me trying to spend my time trying to do it. So, yeah, but I was able to communicate to him because of my knowledge of what I needed and, and the process, you know, exactly what I wanted out of his, out of his work. And that was a good relationship to have. So, 
Yeah, I think um, the that same project that I was talking about at the time, it was a smaller company and they didn't have the money for a Trimble or anything like that. So we actually did the old fashioned compass and tape recording of all Mm. these sites. It was a lot. And I, because at the time I was actually in, I was in that graduate program for GIS. I thought right away, I'm like, you know what? We need to set up a convention, a symbology convention. Now we have to Mm -hmm. have so that the symbology is across the board the way it needs to be. So it's consistent so that one person isn't using this. I mean, that's, if you look at Sanborn's, there's some convention there, there's some consistency, mm-hmm. but there's not. And that's like, usually you're trying to figure out what, is, what does this mean? You know? Yeah. You know, I think that that is also something that GIS can do, you know, with companies, if you have a smaller company, even larger companies may not have it. Just putting together a data dictionary, putting together, mm-hmm an actual set symbology. And then that could be tied to technologies like collector and other, so that when you're finding things in the field that you're using that same symbology across the board, um, it really cuts down on time and expense. And Mm -hmm. it also, once you start training people, what to look for, it's more intuitive to them. Yeah. So in the last just couple of minutes here of this podcast, Heather, this has been great. You mentioned to us during the break that you might have a few books for people to check out mm-hmm. and we'll put links for these in the show notes. But what were you thinking? So there's a few books. Some are just for fun <laughs> and some are actually really, <laughs> I think, good resources. So there's one that's a good resource. If you don't know, it is a thicker book and it's many times used as a textbook in a GIS program, but it's called GIS Fundamentals, a first text on geographic information systems by Bolstad. That's a really good comprehensive textbook type resource. And then there are a few others that kind of talk about like the theory of maps and how they came to be and why we as humans, we have a map in our head. I mean, there's no, Mm -hmm. I'd like you to bring one person to me that doesn't walk around and have a map in their, their cognitive map, right? Where they are right now, I mean, it's whether you think about it or not, you do have a map gone going in your head all the time. So I'm pretty sure my mother doesn't. Um, what's that? But your mom doesn't. I'm pretty sure my mother doesn't, but go ahead. <laughs> so, uh, well, it may not be that great of a map, but <laughs> she has one. So, right, right. <laughs> so there's one called You Are Here. And that's called, it's You Are Here is the name. That's by Catherine Harmon. It's called Personal Geographies and Other Maps of the Imagination. And then a fun one is Maps That Changed Our World by John O.E. Clark. And then one that's really just fun to look at pictures as art or the the maps as art is Everything Sings, Maps for Narrative Atlas or a Narrative Atlas by Dennis Wood. And that's a fun one. You're just looking at how they communicate information in these maps is pretty it's pretty cool. And it gives an explanation too of why they made it the way they did each map. Oh, that's awesome. I'm going to throw this off into left field really quickly here before we wrap up. The other day I was having a conversation with my sister, who's an artist and an arts educator. And she gave as an assignment to one of her classes, do a map of your childhood neighborhood. Nice. And it became this incredibly intense discussion about what is a map and, Mm -hmm. you know, how important is the realism and the the, the spatial accuracy versus the effective 
accuracy, you know, what you remember, what yeah. what matters and so on. And so I think that some of these books are actually going to really help her. Oh, and she has nothing sure. to do with archaeology. Yeah, for sure. Yes. I mean, you know, when you're looking at maps and it's size doesn't mean that that let's say you're looking at a neighborhood and you have a side, you have a one house that's bigger on your map than all others. It doesn't necessarily mean that that was the biggest house on the block, right? That might have been mm-hmm. your most important house, right? Your house mm-hmm. or your best friend's house or you know, there's so many different ways of communicating information. Yeah. In yeah. maps. Maps are so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Well, Heather, this has been great. I'm glad we finally connected on this show. And if you guys want to hear more of, you know, Heather's ideas and opinions, check out the CRM Archaeology Podcast here on the Archaeology Podcast Network. It comes out every Sunday. No, we record every Sunday. I don't even know. It's been 10 years. It comes out every Wednesday, every other Wednesday. Yes, I'll get it right eventually. You'd think after that long, I would know. But yeah, we we have some great discussions over there focused solely around the job of cultural resource management and all the aspects regarding that. And in fact, we've got a lot of a lot of interesting topics, but it's usually focused around CRM. So check that out. And again, Heather, thanks for coming on the show. This has been great. Thanks, thanks for having me. This has been really fun. I don't get to talk about, you know, GIS <laughs> in this kind of way very often. So thank you. It's yeah. Fun. Well, we've been trying to have you on for a while, so it's great that we finally did. And it's great to finally actually kind of virtually meet you after yes. hearing right. you on the CRM <laughs> podcast for so long. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, thanks, Heather. And thanks, everybody else. And we'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.